Hi, I'm Suraj Partha. Welcome to Art in All Its Forms. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to Art in All Its Forms. It has been a longer hiatus than I had hoped, um, which I will get into in a written newsletter coming soon. So if you want to read that, go to uh, artinallitsforms.substack.com. But uh, for now, let's just continue with uh, the episode. Today, I'm speaking with Lauren Patrice Nadler. Lauren is an acting coach and director based in Los Angeles. She originally grew up in Queens, New York, starting her artistic career as a dancer and actor, and she studied for many years with Karen Ludwig, a protege of famed acting coach Uta Hagen. In addition to her primary work, Lauren enjoyed an independent film casting career in New York that resulted in casting future Academy Award winner Adrian Brody in his first role in the film Ten Benny. Lauren's directed a number of film projects in LA, including El Mariachi Negro, a multicultural romantic comedy, and an 11-episode series entitled It's You, Not Me, a romantic comedy about online dating. Finally, Lauren has a long list of actors that she coaches, including Britt Morgan, Jacob Artist, Shay Mitchell, Alex Neustetter, Kyle Allen, Michael Provost, Olivia Keegan, Allegra Acosta, and myself. I also have to mention Lauren was recommended to me originally through two of my Ender's Game compatriots, Kylan Rambo and Aramis Knight. Lauren, thank you so much for talking with me. Well, it's my pleasure. I can't even tell you how much of a pleasure it is. <laughs> it's good to have you. I think I of the podcast guests I've had on, I think I see you the most often because we're we're still obviously auditioning and taping and stuff like that. So you're my acting coach and have been, I think, now for, we were just talking about this in the pre-show. What is it, like six years? I mean, let's think in terms of like, when did you do Ender's Game? That was my freshman year of college, oh no, of high school. And then you knew Kylan Rambo, who was one of the, the co-stars on that. And then I know that by the time I did Modern Family, my senior year of high school, I had, I coached for that with you. So I know that I've known you for at least six years, maybe longer. Oh, Wow. I'd have to go really back in time in my memory to remember that. Uh, that's right. I do totally remember it because I remember, again, my life is one big spoiler alert. I remember absolutely avidly waiting to see it come out and see how it turned out, which was, yeah, that was our first job together because you got Ender's a game on your own and was connected to that. You got connected to that whole crew that I feel like now they're like my family, all of them. <laughs> right. Well, two of them were in your class, both Aramis Knight and Kylan Rambo, and then I was the third person, and then a fourth, Michael Provost, who also... Yes, that was interesting. You know how he ended up coming to me is, again, he was also a young minor at the time, and his mom was looking for a good class for him to head into L.A. Um, and to feel safe that she was leaving her young, impressionable son in L.A., and she saw my website, and all your faces were on it, giving testimony about some of the jobs that you booked and how the work that we did together was helpful, and uh, she's like, I got to meet that one, and she sent him over. So, yeah, that was interesting. So, with all my guests, I start off by just asking or talking about their 
background and how they got to where they are. And so I think I wanted to also spend some time talking to you about how you got out to L.A. Because let me tell you what I do know about you. I know that you grew up in Queens, right? So I know you grew up in Jamaica, Queens, in New York. Jamaica Estates. I have to preface that because it's it's only because it was kind of like now I looking back, I realize it was it was actually quite a privilege. It's a small little square like piece of town right above Jamaica, like north of Jamaica and just like west of Long Island. And um, it was a it was kind of a weird sheltered community. A lot of politicians lived in my neighborhood. Hmm, interesting. I don't interesting. know what that has anything to do with my life, but I lived there <laughs> growing up. <laughs> So, I mean, tell me about that. So, I mean, I, I, I love New York, and so I'm always interested to hear just about what it's like to grow up there and, um, and your childhood specifically. I mean, we, we've talked a little bit just through the years that I've known you about what it was like growing up, what, uh, what you were like as a person and how you were very much like a rebel, uh, which is kind of always exciting to hear. And so this was, when was this? This was during the 80s or the 90s? I'm not going to say. Okay, I'll, I'll try not to, to give anything away. But. <laughs> I just, you know, it's funny. I never thought I'd be a person who cared, like, about my age. But I think it, I, at this point, the way, when I hear my own age, I just feel, like, unrelatable to the young folk. And there's a part of me that still thinks I'm 16. And I feel like everything that people are dealing with now is relatable. But I, I am starting to feel that old fogey thing when people use, like, acronyms and say certain things. And I'm like, I don't know what that means. Or there's, you know, artists that I don't know about anymore. Because, like, at this point, I really keep my head down a lot. And I'm mostly teaching. And I always say I learn from my students about pop culture through what we do in the improv in class when they introduce new subjects. And I just kind of have to move into that because I barely have time to watch TV and watch anything or even listen to your podcast because I'm I have my head down teaching so much. Um, but growing up in the uh, um, I uh, I yes, I was a big fat rebel. I was a terrible student. I was um, really rebellious. I grew up in a. Uh, in a very, very considerably, like, it was considered a, a relatively elite area. My dad was, well, he was until he passed away. But, like, two years before he passed away, he was still practicing chiropractic as, as an actual practitioner up until he was 86 years old. So I grew up in a neighborhood where there was a lot of professionals. And at the time, this will give my age away, chiropractic was really, like, not, like frowned upon. My mm-hmm. my dad was called a quack, and we were like these weird little rebels in the neighborhood of this strange family that did everything through nutrition and chiropractic, and it was just considered really weird. I grew up in a really beautiful neighborhood, and it was kind of like, it felt like a big lie just because we were struggling. Uh, but I went to public school. So, you know, at the time also, we didn't have artistic privileges in school, meaning like it wasn't, it had nothing to do with being well-rounded. You didn't get to they didn't give you the electives like of art and music. Those were all like special things that you earned. And mostly Mm. it was just academic. I wasn't interested in academia growing up at all. And finally, Mm -hmm. when I got to high school, I had an art class that I was in and I was an artist too. I painted and I drew and I um, sculpted. I wrote, I wrote poetry and my family was like kind of understood. My little sister was singing and I was dancing, and you know, because she wanted to be the singer, I had to be the dancer. And um, but I also was drawing, and I decided I didn't want to draw because someone put it in my head that you only get famous as an artist if you're dead. 
So I was like, I'm not going to be an artist. I'll just draw and paint on my own. And my dancing, I quit. And I probably shouldn't say this on this podcast, but I had to quit dancing because at that time, all the different kinds of bodies weren't acceptable in the dance world. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I, my boobs popped, I was done dancing. My mom's like, you can't be, she regrets it now. She said, you can't be a ballerina. And I was right at toes. I was right at point. And she said, you can't, and I was dancing for like 12 years. And she's like, you can't dance when you have boobs. And oh. I'm like, okay, I guess I'm not going to dance now. So I grew up in an age where acting was concerned. If you weren't tall, blonde, blue-eyed, and skinny, you shouldn't even bother acting. But what I yeah. decided was, I'm not going to not bother. I just have to be really, really good. What I'm interested in is, so how, you know, you've talked a little bit about how you settled on acting, I guess, and in this sort of very, like, interesting way, which is just... I kind of wanted to be a rock star, but then I found an acting class that was four weeks, and I went, oh, in four weeks I can be an actor. Ha, 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 Decades later, you know, four weeks you're not an actor, but it, it wets your whistle. That's actually... Sure. Well, you know, and it's interesting what you say, too, about the industry and how... Uh, how closed it was to people who were not of a certain body type or not of a certain type just in general, uh, which, which I can relate to to some extent, I guess. But it, it must have been even worse back then when it's like you have to be a certain kind of woman at a certain age. I mean, a lot of women are even now still talk about the fact that like once, they're, get, once they get past 30 or 40, all of a sudden their career takes this dramatic shift, which is just wild for me to hear about. Uh, and it's something that men just don't have to go through in the same way and it's just terrible to hear about it it's interesting that you even say that that you can even say out loud men don't have to go through that and it is the truth you know i i feel like i took it as a given and i think for some people who have been groundbreaking it it didn't matter to them they did it anyway and those are the ones that made it i on the other hand somehow it did set me back it definitely set me back and i didn't really believe and I just decided that I was, I had to work really, really, really hard. And then I started seeing like everything around me moving in the direction. You know, it's like they say it all the time. If you're getting a divorce, everyone you see is getting married. And if you're getting married, everyone's getting a divorce. And so I don't know that it was that way for everyone. I do know what it was. It definitely did exist. The limited perception of what would what would work or what didn't work at the time. And mm. um, But I still pursued it. And there was a period where I stopped entirely. And I remember almost having like a massive meltdown one day. I was like, I can't live like this anymore. I need to act. And I went back and I returned to, to a different acting class and, and then kind of took the whole thing on the road because I was in this acting class. And I just remember thinking, like, I'm not getting what I need from here, but it's better than nothing. And this particular class was really, really cheap. Mm. And I took the class and every day we just came in and did monologues. And Yeah, I was going to ask you about this. So tell me a little bit about the, the method of these various classes. So how, how are, I think for probably most of my listeners, they don't have a sense of what an acting class is other than maybe they've heard words like method and that's pretty much their, like, their knowledge of what goes on in an acting class where you like smell things that are not there or you see things that are not there. So tell me about what your early classes were like and then obviously later on we'll, we'll get into what you know, your class is like now. My first acting teacher, I would say that she, as much as she taught me to be an actor, I also believe that she was the one that taught me to teach on some level because my observation of what she was doing um, just kind of like took, a diff- took, a ho- took hold in me in different places in my body. She was actually Uta Hagen's key student. And for those of you that don't know, Uta Hagen is like one of the most iconic acting teachers to have ever lived. And Karen Ludwig was my teacher. And 
I praise her to the to the stars. She, I was with her for many years, and I became her key student. But but I still harbored a great fear about getting out there, getting out there. I remember thinking, uh, if I if I if I apply for this one audition, it might the, the job might fall on the day of that month where I happen to have a wedding. And I started playing this waiting game with myself that I just have to encourage anybody listening who's pursuing acting not to. Not to get into. Just you, you got to take the leap and you got to let's see what the cards fall because no one knows what's going to happen. In her class, my the work that I did in there, it was, it, I mean, I, I don't know if I can label it because I don't think that she subscribed to any one method, kind of like I don't either. But we, we were mostly dealing with, I guess, breaking scripts down and analyzing the minutia and the details of the individual scenes. We worked with plays, which means they were published plays that were written by great playwrights where the stories were really fleshed out. And we were mostly instructed to be honest, to be honest in every moment. And I remember one of the first lessons that I had was I was, one day I just decided to start this, tr- this scene and the tr- scene was like me sitting in front of a tree in the park with my boyfriend explaining to him why I wanted to like move in or, or I wanted to exchange keys. It was from a play called Key Exchange. And I remember the first day, somehow it all just came natural to me and I could just feel myself sitting on the grass, even though I was on a tile floor in a classroom in front of a hat tree or a coat tree, whatever those trees are. (laughs) And I remember thinking, like, just doing it. And it was very natural. And the following week, I remember feeling like I was sitting on the ground in a room, a cold, sterile room in front of a hat tree. And it was because I didn't prep it. I didn't let it happen naturally. I didn't let it flow. And then she broke, and then I started having a fight with him. And she says, you can't have this fight with him unless you believe it. And I just didn't understand how to get to the belief part. Ultimately, she's still with somebody. I was with her for six years, but I just didn't know how to get out there into the world. And some some teachers don't also incorporate the business into their class. And they don't need to. It's not their job. But I Mm. I didn't know how to look for it. And Manhattan was a little bit different in terms of just geography. It was just different finding things, getting through things. That ta- that Manhattan wasn't built for acting, whereas in L.A., almost everything caters to the business. I mean, even if you go into a 7-Eleven you know, or the newsstand, it has article, you know, ma- magazines that are about the business. So she, I was with her for six years, and I did scene after scene after scene. I 1,000% established my thirst for, for plays versus television and, and, and uh, film stuff to work on. Not ultimately yeah. what I wanted to do because the plays are much more dense. And if you can get through that material, then long term, you're just going to be better on television and film when you when you uh, look at those scripts. And there's a unfortunate fallacy that people have that they believe, oh, when you're doing theater and you want to do film, you need to bring it down. And I actually say the opposite. You need to bring it up internally so that you can you don't have to project. But if you're not projecting, suddenly you don't have any fervor or, or movement and you become stoic and it's just a different approach. I don't think there's a difference in acting from theater, film or television. All I'm interested in is the truth. Am I moved? Am I affected? Do I care? After that, I I worked with a teacher called, um, maybe it wasn't right after, I think I took the break for a while and then I came back and I went to HB Studios and I, I'm not going to mention the name. This was a much cheaper program. I'm not going to mention the name of the teacher because it was an interesting thing. I think he quit after I said this. But every week I would come in with a, you know, either a new monologue or I would keep using my monologue. Some people would sit out. Some people would be late on the list and it would be carried over to the next week. I made sure I got there two hours early because I just wanted to get back into it. I was desperate to just be able to act again. And it was just monologue stuff. And again, script analysis, breaking down the material. And one day there was a girl that kept coming to class every week. She kept doing the monologue over and over and over again. It's like chairs aren't chairs, they're swimming pools. 
And I just, you know, I want to throw out the garbage. I mean, that was like, and I sat with her outside of class one day before class, and I just had a conversation with her. And I said, well, what are you saying? Why are you, why are you saying this even? Who are you talking to? And I broke it down with her, and I was trying to just get her to understand it better. She walked into the classroom that day, did the monologue, like, brilliantly, and he said, oh, my God, what did you do different? He goes, she goes, I talked to Lauren outside. <laughs> I wasn't teaching, but I understood at that point that I had an aptitude to kind of like be able to relay the message of how mm-hmm. how to tell the truth. And then I was in a method class for a while with a teacher who um, also taught at Tisch. Tisch, is that, is that NYU? Yeah, NYU. That's right. But he had an independent class outside of Tisch because I wasn't in college. And that was all method. And we sat for, you know, an hour or two, an hour and a half before class started, you know, breathing and thinking about smells and thinking about sounds and breathing in and doing animals. And he'd walk around the room. He'd go out and make, that would be his turn. Oh, I hope he doesn't hear this, but that would be his time to go out and and, uh, make a phone call. You know, he'd come back in. He goes, okay, say some lines while I'm breathing heavily and I'm in the snow and I'm smelling lemons. And I would just say some lines. And I understood also how those dots connected. Because it was like trying to get you to feel a certain... If you concentrate on something enough, it, it, you feel a certain way. You can become freezing in 90-degree weather if you have snow hitting you in the face in your imagination. It, a lot of it is about imagination, but it's about imagining things actually that you've experienced or things as you might think you'd exper- experience it. And ultimately, um, we also did scene work in that class, and I, it definitely brought me forward as an actor. But I started realizing I want to be practical in my application of it. Which mm-hmm. means that if I'm going to do sense memory work, which is the, se- the memory of your senses, we're going to incorporate it into the material that you're using. So if you're in a scene and you're in a dark room, it's not just about turning off the lights. It's about experiencing what does it smell like in there? What does it sound like? Is there an echo from a distance? Are there gunshots in the distance? Does it smell like mildew or does it smell like weed? I mean, what, what's going on in this time and space? And sometimes you have to build it in one thing at a time. You can just sit and smell the weed, <laughs> or you can just feel, uh, yeah. hear the sounds of the gunshots. I mean, a lot of the material that I use that I'm very attracted to is, like, edgy, you know, really dope New York writers that, like, have been through it. You can read their scripts, and you know which character they are in their script, and yet every single one of their plays are different. But stylistically, you can tell that they've taken elements from every single one of their plays or the people that they know in their life, and they've, they've moved, moved the pieces around a little bit reshape them, redress them a little bit. And they're the same stories, but they're fascinating. And that's really life. And that's what makes it original. So I think, you know what, actually, let's go out of order. So because I want to come back to to talking about you doing like casting and working with Adrian Brody. And there's some crazy stuff we can totally talk about. But I, I think actually, this is like maybe a good place to talk about your class as well. So let me sort of give my intro into your class, how I perceived it when I got to you, and then we'll go from there. Because I think this is really important to flesh out is just what different LA acting classes can be like. So, because I I think that unless you're an actor, it's very hard to sort of get a sense of this. So when I moved to LA, I was lucky enough that I had been introduced to the young actor space, which is Diane Hardin, who's an acting coach, and her daughter, Melora Hardin, is now like, you know, was on The Office and stuff like that. But anyways, Diane Harden had uh, the young actor space in Van Nuys, and I had been introduced to that studio through my vocal coach from Memphis. And so I started taking classes there. And that's where I got a little bit of this like method stuff of like just sitting somewhere and just 
smelling a smell that doesn't isn't in the room and you know feeling the cold on your ears or on the tip of your nose that kind of thing um and then we would do scenes and do some analysis and stuff and i honestly it was it was a great class it was a, a wonderful class i had a good time there and then i spent a couple years in that i never took like a an audition class so there are some like cold reading and audition classes where or on-camera classes what they call it i have opinions about all those classes as as they <laughs> as they well as they pertain to the real truthful authentic growth of an actor but we can get into that if you want to later and we can also tell you how i ended up in la but go ahead <laughs> yeah, yeah we'll get there i mean an on-camera class is interesting because you're not spending quite as much time talking about acting from the ground up or, or the art of it, I would say. You're spending a lot of time thinking about what it means to audition, going into the room, what that situation is going to be like. It, it's a little more business-oriented, but for some people, it seems to be valuable. I just never encountered that. Depends on the on the cold reading audition technique class. I mean, some of them are talking sure. about things that are very technical. Some of them will deal with the acting. Um, I, I mean, in general, acting uh, auditions are very are very inorganic anyway. I mean, you're standing in front of a camera, creating a whole bunch of things that are not there. Um, and, <laughs> and it's not, and you can't move off a mark and it's not how it would be on set. So it's unrealistic, but the audition itself is important to be able to do all that within a small box. The other part of it is, that, however, is if you're, if you're trying to um, create the audition in an audition class and in the audition class, you're working on a scene from Friends and then you get a scene from Criminal Minds, the two things don't go together. So to me, the winning op the winning combination would be doing scene study and a certain type of character building improv, where you can become the best actor you can be, and then um, coach for those auditions. So I did those classes, and then when I shot Ender's Game, I I think on Ender's Game, what I got a sense of after having acted for a couple of years was, okay, I'm good enough that someone wants me to be in this big movie. But I saw the work that the adults were doing on that film, and I said, okay, there's something else to do here. Uh, I even saw the work that Kylan was doing, and I thought, all right, there, there's something else I, I'm, I'm not getting yet. Um, so I asked Kylan, you know, who his acting coach was, and it was you. And so then I came to your class, and I can give a little bit of a background on, on the class, just like the structure, and then you can, we'll talk about it for some time. The class is essentially from... When I first got in, it was like half was an improv, but an improv unlike anything I had ever done. When most people think of improv, they think of like games uh, or they think of like the show Whose Line Is It Anyway? So it's like a five minute game and then you get some audience suggestions and stuff and then you sort of move on to the next game, uh, which can be really great. But your improv is a long form improv, which sometimes lasts like an hour and all the actors in the class have to tell this story for the entire hour. And there's still typical improv, like structural things, like you can freeze people in and out and there's, you can like create a flashback or you can talk on the phone, stuff like that. But it really is a form unlike any other. Uh, and now it's, a, it's an improv show, which you know I've had the chance to guest star in called Making a Movie, which is when we, whenever we get back to... Uh, to live in-person shows, I, I'll I'll put a link, you know, to the to the website so that people can to, can come see this amazing show. 
Um, we're building our YouTube channel to literally be a full-blown channel with seasons and everything, and now I'm in the middle of editing, like, endlessly for months now to get the whole thing up to snuff. So if people want to see and experience even you in a lot of episodes, they can, <laughs> they can look them up and go to, go to the channel. Well, it's, it's, it's wild. Uh, it's, and it's hard. It's really tough. I mean, I've been in your class for six years or something like that. And I really only started to feel like I had a handle on it probably into the second or third year where I was like, oh, okay, now I, I feel that I can be nimble in this and not just hanging on for dear life. Uh, but there's, <laughs> but there's so much in, in that improv that I, I learned. And then I later connected to my jazz education when I got to college because there, you have to be able to carry this narrative for a long period of time. At the same time, you have your own role that you have to play really well. And there's a lot of continuity you have to think about. So you, it can't be a game of just sort of going with the flow and just talk. I don't know. I got really poor advice, not from any of the acting classes I mentioned, but from someone a long time ago who you know, gave me this note, which has always stuck with me and has kind of hurt me, which is get out of your head. And I've always hated that note of getting out of your head because I've always felt like I'm... <laughs> a very nerdy person. I, I really like academic stuff. And when someone says, get out of your head, it, it kind of was like, oh, well, Suraj, you're, you're trying to be smart and you're thinking too much, but you have to be something else. Whereas when I got to your improv, it was one of those times when I realized, oh no, you have to be smart to do this. You have to be thinking about this and you, you've got to be able to carry these multiple threads as the stories go on. Uh, you have to be able to, to, to have all those balls up in the air and know how your role fits in. Uh, so t tell me about how you got to that long-form improv. Well, I want to touch on a couple of things you said, and then I'll tell you that. First of all, sure. the getting, getting out of your head thing, you know, for me, stuff like that is like a language problem. Like, it means something different to you than it means to somebody else. Like, the one note I actually ban people from using, like, the one thing I will not ever say to anybody is throw it away. I'll, because it doesn't mean anything. Casting directors will tell actors to do that all the time, and I understand. The thing is, you have to understand what they mean by it, and then you could do it. But throwing it away is actually not throwing it away. It just has to be not the pri not the biggest priority, or it has to be like you're saying it under your breath for a reason. But there's always got to be a motivation. The improv um, is difficult, and it is juggling a lot of balls in the air at the same time. And, but there is a point where somebody just clicks in, and all of a sudden they're doing it, and they can juggle a lot of balls in the air at the same time. The improv is designed for you guys to be able to truthfully throw it away and get out of your head two things I don't want to ever say to anybody because the bottom line is what we do in life every moment we're doing it now we improvise and if somebody mm -hmm. if something comes flying through my window hits me in the face then I'm dealing with that if the cat jumps off the cat tree and starts stepping on my desk and eating my food I'm dealing with that we're improvising every moment that we're living so my goal with the improv initially so I started doing it years and years ago, just as a warm-up. I'm like, oh, let's just warm up. Nobody wants to go first in their scene, so why don't you guys play with each other a little bit? But I've been to tons of improv shows, and I actually am a hater of improv, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> I used to go to improv shows on behalf of some people that I was trying to support. I don't like it because I don't think it supports what actors need to do. And what actors need to do is they need to be truthful, they need to be specific, and anything neck-up funny was okay. And now, so I started giving critical notes in the improv for just a plain long-form improv. I'd be like, go in, two people start, let's see where it goes. It was very unstructured. And so mm -hmm. two people would start, and they'd start talking to each other, and the only rules were 
to freeze in and out and tap somebody out. So you'd freeze, you'd say freeze, you'd tap somebody out. And in my story, I wanted you to continue the story. I never wanted to do anything like, for example, you know, the audience would call out in in a show. They'd be like, so give us a letter of the alphabet and it would C. And so one person would go in and they'd talk about cookies and the next person would go in and talk about cowboys. The next person, how is this helping acting? I don't get it. Like it just didn't make any sense to me. I wanted to use the improv as a real vehicle for people to be able to be truly storytellers and also to create characters. Initially, I said, because you get to go in and out and in and out over the course of the whole thing, let's work on things you might need, like an accent or like a limp, being blind. It's turned into something so much more than that. Like Mickey alone has like 350 characters up his sleeve. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you've got quite a few there too, and they are different people. Initially, it was an it was just an exercise, but I was always looking for the truth. I never wanted people to go in and just be do shock value stuff for the sake of shock value. And yet, some of the stuff is shocking. But when you ground yourself in the truth, we believe it, we buy it, we watch it. So it started out with just freeze in and out. That was it. And then something changed. Two people ended up talking, and they were on separate phones together. And I'm like, ooh, we have a split screen here. And then I started incorporating that in by going, okay, now, today, every other is going to be a split screen. And that meant that they could be, mostly all we had initially was the phone call or a computer console. Then it became on the top of a mountain and below, on a computer screen, on a, on a, on a, on a television screen, watching. I mean, it's endless. But it wasn't, the split screen wasn't first, but way later, flashbacks came into play. And I ring a bell and they flip into a flashback, which is so helpful for people who are auditioning. For mm-hmm. characters who are going in for procedural shows, doing an interview with a cop, and then the next part of the audition, you have to flip back to the thing that you're describing and then come back to the present so they could see that you could act in both those scenes. And in the real world, you'd be doing those scenes on th- two different days, and you'd have hours of prep, but here you have to do it on an audition like that. And that's what we have to do in, in the improv. I mean, the thing that I sort of realized uh, as I was doing it is that like you said, it's not a novelty to you. You're trying to provide the tools that actors are going to need to use as they act in anything. And so the, the split screen is totally relevant because it pops up all the time in auditions when you have to be on the phone with somebody. The The flashback is totally relevant. I, I myself played a telephone operator on an episode of Without a Trace, and I'm listening to the sound. That's a network television show that's off the air, you know, because I'm old. And... Um, <laughs> And I'm listening to this voice on the other end of the phone. And I have a really big issue with people who don't know how to talk to somebody on the other end of the phone and really hear the voice on the other end of the phone. So it's details, details, details. And, and I would let this thing run for 45 minutes. Then we would talk about it. And the talking about it was where the education happens in the sense that it's not about right, wrong, good, bad, pass, fail. It's about what worked and what didn't and how can we fix the things that didn't in the future. And what would end up happening was when people would just walk in and appear out of nowhere, suddenly they started turning the doorknob and walking in the room and coming from somewhere specific. And all of the problems that anybody had in their acting or the things that weren't believable started to dissolve and fade away. And people were working with their environment, 360 degrees, they'd walk in, and suddenly the atmosphere would change. And now we're in a wine cellar in the basement, and next we're on the moon, and next we're, like, you know, being held captive, and next we're in a field. These people started creating environments, and when I saw that that was possible, I recognized that we as actors actually have a responsibility to create the environment in our auditions and ultimately even on set when those environments are actually there, to just believe that they're there. The biggest Mm -hmm. thing that I've discovered recently, the main reason I actually think that this improv is so invaluable is for um, continuity and script analysis or 
When you establish something in the beginning of it, you can't just say later on, oh, never mind, or oops. If somebody goes in as your mother, later they're not your mailman. You know, you have <laughs> to connect. And what happens is you start to be much quicker at, at accumulating information that isn't just in your head, but it goes into your body. And you know later when somebody comes at you and earlier you were afraid of butterflies and they come in later with butterflies, you're going to flinch. Yes, right. It's creating these arcs. And I think that this became very clear to me also when I went to college and studied jazz, how much this like the narrative arc becomes important. Where are the peaks? Where are the, the hills and valleys? Uh, and continuity, like you said. Uh, it, in, in jazz, it pops up where there's my uh, my teachers used to say, all there is is the melody and everything else is based on it. So you have like the form of the main melody, which is like the part of the song that you sing. And then usually jazz musicians, you know, will, will play that part of the chart and then we'll go into solos. And when you're soloing, you always have the melody in your ear still. So you can hear what the melody is and you can hear what the chords are, but now you're playing something else where that musical space is because the melody isn't, isn't playing anymore. Now you're improvising. It sounds dangerous. It's almost like you could totally go awry with that. If you're not really plugged in. That's exactly right. It's all about instincts. You know, if you have a game plan, like people who are so plan oriented cannot actually improv because it's like they'll go in and do something and someone else will come in and do something else. And they're like, I wasn't ready for that. Well, too bad. Are you ready for it in life? It's so funny that you say that because, you know, Meisner, Meisner says the words don't matter. It's kind of like... It sounded almost like what you just said about how the melt. This doesn't matter in in the song. Right, right, yeah, right. So Meisner is an acting, a very famous acting coach. Which I always say, you know, these these techniques of acting were not invented. Like Meisner didn't invent acting, like repetition. Meisner discovered it out of a reality of what worked, and he gave it a name. His. So I'm, if people ask me what my style is, I use some Meisner, I use some method, which is Stanislavski. I use all of these different methods. I don't use them, though. I apply them when they seem to be important. When you have a mm-hmm. diet of all pizza, you're going to get fat. When you have one diet of method, you're going to go into your head and be like weird. If you're doing Meisner, you're going to be droning and just repeat, repeating. And again, not to badmouth any of the methods because they're important. They're hugely important. They were discovered out of a reality of what worked and somebody gave it a name. But Meisner... It's a misunderstanding, too. The, the principle of Meisner is that the words, they say the words don't matter. And people misunderstand that. They're like, the words don't matter. And then they walk around butchering people's scripts. Instead of realizing that, the words don't matter until you make them matter. And they will only matter if you make it personal. And, you know, there's a lot of people who will say they only do everything from imagination. They never use any substitutions. And I'm telling you, as much as I know my own name, that 100%, if you make it, if it's personal, it's just better. So the scary part about becoming an actor is either that you think, you know, you're not good enough or not pretty enough or no one will like you and you're putting your heart on the floor. The scariest part about acting is that it does have to be honest and it does have to be personal. You have to tell the truth. It's a switch that I think non-actors, it's a little hard for them to perceive that acting isn't about lying. It's not about faking things. It's about telling the truth. Uh, One teacher used to tell me the truth in imaginary circumstances. And I think that was a, it was a nice little condensed version of what acting really is. I have another, I can reframe that a tiny bit, so I think it's even more, like, more clear. My very friend, Karen Ludwig, used to say to me, I don't know if this is exactly how she said it, but I I repeat her all the time, and I say, acting is not lying. It's telling the truth with different words. (laughs) So that, to me, was really profound. That stuck with me literally decades now. I added to that with another phrase, which is... 
Acting is your opportunity to say and do all the things you've ever wanted to say and do to all the people you've ever wanted to say and do them to, and you're protected with the words of the script. So there's something concealing that it's personal, and yet you're speaking from that personal place, which is hopefully your heart. You know, I watch music shows all the time, and you know, like The Voice and, you know, some of these, these, so you think you can dance and, you know, and so you think you can dance. It's like they, these people, they transfer from one method of dance to another. And sometimes they do it effortlessly, physically, but there's, there's something else involved in that, which is we want to feel it. And I remember one of the judges had said, we don't want to see the steps. And if we don't believe you, I'm like, how do you, and some people are like, what do you mean you don't believe me? I'm dancing. What do you mean you don't believe me? But there's a story in dance and there's a story in song. Yeah, well, I think it, well, it's a good place to, to, uh, to, to switch over now to the second half of the class, which is all, which is scene study. And, and like you said, I guess this is something that you must have picked up from your earlier teacher, which is in your class, we all, we do just plays. So unless we're doing cold reads, which happen every once in a while, uh, we're exclusively working with theatrical material. And so this is where I got introduced to Kenneth Lonergan, John Patrick Shanley, um, and some other, you know, fantastic writers. Uh, I think one of my, f I don't know my first scene, I can't recall what it is, but I know one of my first scenes was a scene from This Is Our Youth, from Kenneth Lonergan's play, which I had the, the good fortune of seeing on Broadway some years later with Michael Sarah playing the role that I had played in your class. I don't remember that. Oh my goodness. I didn't know that. Or maybe I did and I forgot. How could I forget that? Yeah, it was really fun to see that play like on Broadway. And then I had done one of those roles, so I knew all the lines. It was a really nice experience actually. And I mean I can tell you, well, I was intimidated as hell coming into your class because of course the material's denser than the things that you usually get for film and TV, which is more of a visual medium, whereas in theater, what you have is the stage and you have the actors on it and they have to talk. So there's a lot more talking happening. So just structurally, it's like that. But a lot of things that I really should have known about acting, for some reason, I feel like I discovered only once I had had to deal with this material in your class, which is how important it is to read the entire script, uh, which is something that just is so obvious, like just... Uh, uh, upsettingly obvious, and yet I don't know why it didn't occur to me like that. Listen, you know what? Common sense is very different from person to person. I mean, you would think it's now it's like unheard of. I mean, look, I have clients right now. For example, I don't. I'm gonna. I'm not gonna name names. They get a bunch of scripts from their manager, and they're like, read the scripts and tell us which one you'd like to meet the director on. When you meet the director, what the hell do you think you're going to be talking about when you're sitting with the, the director? Script. The freaking script. So you better get used to reading scripts. If that's inconvenient, then don't be an actor. <laughs> I, absolutely. You need to buy the play and read the whole play. But there yeah. is also some people, again, not to badmouth other teachers, that are teaching you, well, in Meisner, you don't need to know what comes next because you, you don't know what comes next in life. And I had this conversation with a Meisner teacher who was also, an, he actually worked quite a bit. He was an action actor. And I said, really? You're an action star. I have a really hard time believing that you, every, all 15 times when you jump off that cliff in five different setups, three takes per setup, does that equal 15? Yeah. Yeah. I have a really but hard time. I really have a really hard time believing that you didn't know you were going to do that. I really firmly believe that you need to know if later in the script you murder somebody, you need to know that early on because you're headed there. That's where mm -hmm. you're headed, and that's the, yeah. the the history of that later experience has to stem from something. So you have to start earlier. Right. Well, I think what's more, I think the piece that people miss is that 
The fact that you did murder someone later is reflective of your character's history. So it's not, it's not just about that you, you don't need to know what happens. You absolutely need to know what happens because that's reflective of what did happen to you, which I think is, it, right? There's a history there, which I think people miss. Well, I mean, and I know this from having to eventually to write a play that <laughs> writers are smart people. And it, when you do an analysis of these scripts, it, it's like you're on a, de a detective hunt. I mean, you're on a hunt. And you're looking for all the various clues that the writer has dropped. And the writer's dropping a lot. I mean, not just the lines, but what's in between the lines. And so you, you're really catching a lot if you're micro-detailing it and you're paying attention. And like you said earlier, doing it in layers, too. For me, This Is Our Youth, one layer was just the physical actions I had to do. Because there's a lot of, like, you know, there's weed, there's cocaine, pulling it out, putting it on, you know. Uh, moving stuff around, picking up the phone, right? They're making the rolling the joint. So there's all this stuff that has to happen, which I'm not familiar with. I turned you into a stoner in my class. Well, I did that scene, and then we've talked about this. I did that scene, and then now we've gone like three film-related things in a row that I've had to <laughs> to do, either smoke weed or sell drugs or something. It's very funny. Um, but so the one layer was just that, and then there were many, many other layers that we develop. So I think working on that was very helpful. But in addition to that, one thing that I really like, which is very just kind of obvious to me now, but it's something that you don't experience in other classes, is that we have long-term scene partners for months. Uh, and you don't get the chance to do this unless you're, you go to college and you're in theater school or you get a chance to really be in a production of something. In LA, a lot of the acting classes, you, you do a scene for, for two weeks and, and you're out of there and then you, you switch scene partners. One of the beauties of doing scene study in your class, it isn't just that I get to work on a material for months on end and really get to the bottom of it. I know I've, between me and, and my friend Andrew, we did a scene from a, a new play by Rajiv Joseph and we did like the entire first act together I, we never get a chance to do stuff like that in other classes so i but it just seems that it was evident that it occurred to you that hey we we should let these these people develop relationships with other actors long term as well i mean i'm surprised when i hear that actors come out of classes where they're not even allowed to talk to their classmates outside of class or rehearse with them that's not natural i know that on television that i'm trying to cover like this sounds stupid because some people say well if you you know put too many things in the soup it's you know it's going to be a mess or whatever but i'm trying to cover everything and in time i can and i do meaning you want to work on a play long term either because you're going to be in theater but also because you want to develop a character so 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 thoroughly that you can take that character into another situation and you want to know that you can return to that character over and over you go do a series you're on hiatus for two months you have to return to that character you have to have it in your body in your bones you can't get a character in your body in your bones in two weeks i think most cl classes don't address Actually, what it means to be on this long term, they're, I think, afraid maybe of the short attention spans. I don't care. Some people are intimidated by the fact, like, they'll ask me, how many scenes am I going to work on in a cycle? And a cycle in my live class was six weeks, which was ongoing. That just meant you re-upped every six weeks and you weren't committed, but it was intended to be ongoing. They want to do two, three, five, six, max, you know, quantity is not quality. And the reason that you want to, I can guarantee you right now that Meryl Streep did not learn acting cold reading. That just wasn't how it worked. I mean, she just didn't. I'm no, not, I don't, I don't, I don't I, you know, I should, probably should take a look at what she did do. 
Well, I talk about this with Mora because she went to to Yale Drama School, uh, and so because my my girlfriend, because Mora is is at Yale doing uh, choral conducting there, and so she, but she works with someone who is in the drama school who does production design and projection design and lighting. Actually, Camilla Tassi, who I also had on this podcast, uh, but. I always joke with her. I'm like, wow, you know, I live vicariously through you. I don't go to Yale Drama School. I never had like a a, a theater education as such. Uh, but yeah, it's very funny because Meryl Streep went went to to Yale and probably did Yale Repertory Theater and all that business. I didn't go to I didn't go to university either. And I think mm-hmm. if if you pick my class, is designed. It's like the closest thing to a conservatory that you'll get without being at a conservatory. And it's also got a lot of practical knowledge that you're going to use in the audition process, on set, etc. And that's not necessarily what you get. I'm not bad-mouthing college because you know, when people come to me from some strong college background, many times they are very good, but oftentimes they have a lot of erroneous ideas because it's not tailored to individually address what that actor may need. And they come sometimes projecting too far. And I don't know, I, I'm not going to talk about on behalf of what other educators do. I just know what I do. And I know what I do works. I, I can say from my own experience talking with the theater students at USC who are a fantastic bunch, extremely talented. I was mostly just lucky that I got a leg up on time. I had I was doing This Is Our Youth when I was in high school at the end of high school. And then by the time I got to sophomore year, I was living with the theater students. And I kid you not, I walked down downstairs one time and I was like, oh, what, what play are you working on? And they said, this is our youth. Have you heard of it? And I was like, oh, I've, <laughs> I've done every scene in this play before. And it, so it wasn't so much that it was like, and I think we, we had a great discussion about it and I could tell that they had analyzed it you know, wonderfully, but... I agree with you. There are some practical tips that you that we get from you because you have to work with students who are in the film TV industry and you have to coach us for auditions and all of that. So what's interesting to me is that even though we're doing theatrical works in the scene study, that it translates so nicely to film and TV. And we're not thinking very much about that distinction. What I'm right. doing with you guys is I'm, I'm choosing material that does have a place in film and television society. And I'm also letting you know, if you look at this carefully, this translates into that. And this is where it's applicable. And I let you do things for a long time because I want you to understand what it feels like to live inside of a character's mind for any length of time so that you can lead a film. You can be the lead in the film and live that character's life for over time. Um, I do different things when you're working on scenes. I do a couple of pa- we do a couple of pages until you've locked into who that character is, and then we add more information, which is circumstances and situations. And then we sometimes stop all of that and start fresh with a new piece of it, not even overlapping, so that you can feel what it feels like to be in like a new episode, where you're still the same character, but these are new circumstances. Mm-hmm. So my application with what I do when I teach, all is practical. All also in the name of having a really good time. Like, this doesn't need to be painful. It, it should be fun. I mean, if you're going to choose this as a profession, you should enjoy it. I mean, there are all too many people who are doing jobs that they hate. If you choose this, then it should be fun. Because if you think you're going to make a lot of money in acting really fast, I, I, you know, I say, if you want to make a lot of money fast, don't be an actor. Go sell drugs. <laughs> I'm not recommending that. You know, like some people are anomalies. They shoot out of a cannon and they end up with a success. But you have to work like anything else in any relationship to maintain that. You have to work to maintain whatever it is that brought you an early success. And sometimes you're guided 
in ways that you have no control over, that sometimes your career might take like a slow, slow, slow burn for a while because, I don't know, the universe is telling you work harder on this, this, and this because when you break out next, you'll be unstoppable. I mean, there are actors that have disappeared and come back. I mean, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, he was like on a weird series, Third Rock from the Sun. He played this little boy we never heard from for years. And then he shows back up again. Guaranteed he's studying. Again, best kept secret. He can't just grow up and become a grown-up actor without doing something about it. Something in him said, I need to work on this. I mean, what do I know? I don't know him. I never spoke to him. But I'm just saying, like, you know, I've been around actors who ultimately won an Oscar. I worked with Adrian Brody several times. And, mm-hmm. you know, in working with him, I wasn't his teacher, but I was the I was the casting director and the assist. And then I ended up going on set as the assistant director on two movies with the same director, Eric Bross. And we took Adrian with us on both of them and just watching in the way he works, the, the way in which he works, the way he focuses, the way he concentrates, the way he tunes the world out and does what he needs to do. You know, the mark of a good actor is not how fast you get it. It's that you know what you need. And you Mm -hmm. do whatever it takes to find that. And this is actually a good place, I think, for us to go backwards a little bit. So now we kind of know, like, what the scope of your class is. But you didn't get directly into acting or teaching acting. Because at this point, I think, in your chronology, as far as we've gotten, you're still in New York at this point. So how did you get involved with with casting? And then I did want to talk a little bit about Adrian Brody. So for for those of you who don't know, Adrian Brody won an Oscar for Best Actor uh, for being in The Pianist. And so... Every time I think about Lauren working with Adrian Brody. The youngest male nom- male actor to win an, an Oscar. And he, right. he won it only like two or three years after we had worked together on something. And then, you know, again, and you think people forget you. And it was so funny because I went to a screening of The Pianist. And um, it was very hard for me to watch that movie because knowing him personally and seeing him struggle. If anybody's seen that movie, it's one of the most, it's like he's tortured in it, tortured. And it was really painful to watch him go through that. And what I understand is he lost weight to start the movie at the later point when he became gaunt and then he had to gain the weight back. Anyway, he was doing an interview, I think at the Directors Guild, and I went to the, to, to the screening. I hadn't seen him in years. And I'm sitting in the audience and somebody asked a question. He was like scanning the audience and just like into the mic, he just goes, Lauren. And then he keeps going. <laughs> oh, that's so nice. Funny little moment. And, you know, he was he's a really terrific guy. Um, as I mean, I spent time with him on set in two movies for chunks of time, but um, and we had barely any conversations about anything because he was always focused on the work. And the thing is, you have to respect that. You got to respect that. It, it's it's the way that he works. But going back in time, where were we? What were we talking about? Uh, casting. So because you at this point you hadn't you, you were, were not teaching acting. You were just I, I don't know how you went from you're in an acting class. And you had been doing bartending and stuff. And then you started getting on casting and, and, and being the AD, assistant director for some films. So how something like that happens is like it's, you know, when smaller productions want to put their stuff together and they can kind of almost use any help that they can get. They'll give you a job to do and you'll just do it. OK, that's the abridged version. The longer version of that is that I'm in mean, my goodness. Now that you're asking me, I was acting. And I also had some leadership skills, running clubs and stuff like that. And a friend of mine, called Ken, called, reached out to me and said, hey, you're the, you're the person I know that has, like, actors, and I want to put you in this movie. So could you, you know, could you gather some of your actors and put them together and let's do, let's make this movie. But I was acting at the time, and I was in this movie, and I brought together a whole bunch of people. And then I ended up asking, <laughs> this is very interesting, I ended up asking 
my boss at the club that I was bartending at if I could use the club one day to do a casting for a friend of mine that wanted to cast an independent film. And I did mm-hmm. this casting, and he was kind of hanging around and watching me and paying attention and thinking about, like, I don't know what he was thinking about. All I know is that a couple of months later, he approached me and said, my friend Eric is making a movie, and he needs some help. And I met with Eric, and I ended up casting his movie. I had no real casting experience. Like, I wasn't reaching out to agents and booking people on jobs. I was just pulling my friends together. When when Eric asked me to be part of this, he, he had Sam Rockwell attached to this film called Ten Benny. And he, it wasn't called Ten Benny at the time. It was called Nothing to Lose. But I think Martin Lawrence had already been making a movie called Nothing to Lose. So he, they were able to fund this movie, I think, by buying that name from him and changing it to what it was. It had a working title for a while, and then it ended up being called Ten Benny. Sam Rockwell was the lead. And Sam, close to when we were done casting, and then I was just basically doing casting sessions. We put out you know, casting notices to, to backstage and whatever. And I sat beside the director and we were doing castings. And now I had boxes and boxes of headshots attached to resumes, like in the olden days when it was all paper, all paper. Oh God. I remember even I was like at the end of those days, I had to get, you know, like 250 printed headshots and put the resumes on the back of them and all that stuff. Now we're, we're in the, in, in the days now when you need like, I don't know, 20 a year and you can get away with it but i remember going to the post office and picking up bins like bins bins of headshots and sorting through them eric and i talked and i ended up casting um we ended up having sam rockwell got a got a job he was just starting out too and he had he was the lead in this and he ended up apparently getting a tiny role but in a bigger movie so he Mm. quit on us and we had to find a new lead and Eric said to me, I really like this kid, Adrian Brody. I saw he was in a tiny little part in this movie. Could you go after him? So I cast this film, and then the director ended up doing another movie and asked Adrian to come along to that one. And in that one, they had another main casting director, and I just did the smaller roles um, and the supporting characters. And I cast for a bunch of other people, a bunch of other independent things, because people knew that I had, I had a collection of actors that I could access. All of that was very well, helpful. It was a very helpful foundation, but for me, as a creator, I, I, I just felt like my creative juices were not... I don't want to... It was almost like casting and ADing, it was like being pregnant, you know, having like, get holding on to the baby and then giving it up. Well, so, so tell me about this. So then you go from, you're doing casting, you're, you're ADing. Moving from New York to LA is a huge jump. So how does that get made? Okay, so for a couple of years, I was working with this weird kind of management talent group, talent management group, and they were putting together groups and trips, and they were in competition, kind of shoveling them out to Los Angeles through this competition. So basically, you had to be sponsored by a school. Unfortunately, it was sponsored by like a John Robert Powers, and those schools they teach you nothing. And all over the world, wherever those all over the country, all those John Powers. Robert Powell schools would do this competition. The school that I worked for was one independent school. It was in New York City. The owner of the school was kind of a brilliant guy. He was, he called them, they called it a talent management company. I taught for them and I ended up becoming their secret weapon. And in competition, after a couple of years, the guys who facilitated the monologue competitions would like see somebody and then they would look at me and be like, is that one of yours? Because I was teaching them real acting instead of going, let's do this weird competition. And in the end, what he developed with me was a separate program that was aligned with that program where I 
developed like a showcase, a live showcase thing that he would invite a whole bunch of industry to and it would bookend the competition. So it gave all the actors more opportunities. So I was doing this and it was by Coastal. And then I ended up through this also getting an agent myself. And um, this is a really funny part. I went to some kind of a, a, a meeting with my my whole family and it was to visit with this psychic and she was mm. called I think she was called the white buffalo woman and we were talking and I was having this feeling like this gnawing feeling I need to just go to LA I was going to come for my acting because I was leaving my teaching behind in New York but I had had by this time seven groups seven generations it was every June and July for seven years or 14 generations of a few people out of each one of those groups that had moved to LA that whenever I was in LA and whenever they were they, wanted, York, to they wanted to study with me. So I ended up, this woman, this psychic, when she turned to do the reading on me, in this really weird, like, channeled voice, she went, go west. <laughs> <laughs> like, literally. And that's she, said, it. she said, go west. And my mother was like, you know, you've been talking about it, you've been thinking about it, and you're afraid. And I remember sitting outside in the snow outside my apartment building on the curb because my car broke down and I was just like broke and frustrated. And I was like, I just need to go to LA. And I just moved. I packed up a truck. It wasn't quite that simple. It was harder because I had to sell my apartment and I had to figure out all of that stuff. And when I got here, I had 14, like a few smatterings of 14 generations, seven years worth of, of a collection of students that got their representation as a result of the studying they had done with me through this management company in competition. They moved out here because they had representation. So I was able to immediately start my school. Wow. And that's how it happened. And everything was word of mouth after that. I've literally like never advertised or done anything. I mean, I send out a newsletter periodically, but I wouldn't call that an advertisement. And it's been nice. It's been, I mean, it's been hard. I mean, you know, early on when I didn't have a website and nobody knew who I was and, you know, there was always this, this, this debate about pulling people from my class to go somewhere else, somebody that was more reputable. And in some cases, the more reputable people get, the more distance they have between you and them and there's a series yeah. of classes beneath them and you're not really learning from the person who can take a personal interest and I've always sworn because my goal is not to just be um, like a massive meat market of a school I teach all my classes I've only made a very small exception recently Mickey who's the star of my show Mickey Shaloa teaches my teen class with me um, he's the first and only person that I've ever like had teach um, other than myself and I'm still in there because I'm hands-on with everything that I do here. And my goal would be to be teaching consistently and directing one or two films a year um, so that I can actually utilize my acting army as well as um, continue to teach because I really, really love it. It's, it's very much my lifeline. I mean, I've directed, since I've been in L.A., I've directed probably five short films and a feature that uh, was I wouldn't really want to talk about that one but the all the short films have made it into a festival and been accepted and got nominated for awards and so uh, you know it's been and all with no resources like zero resources on those films um the reason why I swear by you and why I'm very grateful for our relationship uh is when I was in college at, at USC and I had to do audition tapes at odd hours, you and I, we, we don't want to advertise this so much because I know that, you know, like I said, we have a, a very different relationship perhaps after some years. I have to reserve that for certain people that, see, for me, you know what it's about? My love for an actor is about their commitment and their, their, their clarity and their integrity about the work. It's like, literally, there would never be a day where I would say, nope, Serge, I can't make time for you. It doesn't matter if it means I don't sleep, bathe, or eat that day. 
I can't say that for everybody. And it goes through phases. And certain people, it's never been through a phase. From the day that I've met them to today, it is that. And you are one of them, without exception. Well, that's, it's very kind of you. Um, I mean, in addition to me, you have some fantastic students. And I think you, even if you're not necessarily looking to be uh, a Larry Moss, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio's acting coach kind of person, you have quite the list now. I mean, uh, Alex Neustadter, who was like with, acted with Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan and then had his show on USA. Uh, what was the name of the show again? He's shooting right now. He's actually, I think, second on the call sheet shooting a movie, shooting a new series with Jeff Daniels. He's the second lead. Oh, that's wild. This is a really big deal because, you know, he was on Colony on USA. He did a great job on that, and he was really well-loved. And he was one of those diligent people that, while he was on set, this is why my online work dates back, you know, several years, because when he was in Canada away shooting, and Jacob Artist, too, a lot of them when they were shooting, I've, oh, I've been doing this online thing for a long time. Like, I've been, I have a good aptitude for working with people online. Yeah, you'll coach us online. You've coached me from, I've been in India, I've been in Amsterdam, I've been all over the place. I was a little bit ahead of the curve where that was concerned, but Alex literally, I think, has done two to three films on every hiatus for every series that he was on. He booked this series called Rust, and it was about to shoot. The trigger was pulled. He drove to Philadelphia, and quarantine started the next day, and they shut down. They just started back up again a year later, but they kept mm-hmm. the commitment to make this project, and he's on it, and he's loving it. That's so exciting, and I'm such a huge Jeff Daniels fan. Oh, God. So it's been 10 years I've been working with him, and it's been a joy. He's an amazing, amazing young man. He has turned out to be, like, on- honestly, like, a- he's an amazing actor, but he's also become an exemplary human being, and everyone who works with him tr- respects him, trusts him. I had the chance to do a scene with him, Private Wars. It was that play. And he was another one of those students who I did a scene with him, and when I got to the end of that scene, I- I've told him this before, I got to the end of that scene and I was like, oh, okay, you're operating on a different level right now. So some, there's something I got to, I need, I need some growth now because I can see that I, we were operating from two different places. So there's someone like Alex and then there's a Kyle Allen who we've mentioned before and who I've had on the podcast who was in Hulu's you know, The Path and now uh, did a film recently with Catherine Newton. Map of tiny perfect things, and this yep. is one of the craziest things too. The openings. Did you see it yet? Have you seen it yet? I haven't seen it yet. No, 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 no. I need to see it. This is a little bit of a spoiler alert, but not really. The opening sequence is unbelievably, magnificently, for, miraculously, physically almost impossible. But that's Kyle. He's a tumbler and a jumper and an athlete and a dancer. And this film yeah. allows him to incorporate all of his talents, from fighting to jumping to dancing to gymnast to his gymnast stuff to his acting. I mean, it was like it was written for him. Crazy. Yeah, Kyle. I mean, there's a lot of them. Britt Morgan has done, you know, five or six series. And what I lo- what I really, really, really started to see a pattern with is very exciting to me is a lot of my students who end up with like one or two episodes to recur on something. If they're not the series like or the lead, once they start working, even before it airs, they start piling up. They pile they pile up episodes on them. I mean, Olivia went from doing. Mm. That's Olivia. Olivia Keegan <laughs> it was on uh, Days of Our Lives and she won a Emmy. Yep, she just won the the daytime Emmy, um, which is really interesting because she got once she started class, she got nominated twice, and she and I don't take credit for it, but she's really quite good. And and she now she's on High School Musical. The I keep saying High School Musical. High School Musical, the musical, the series, season two. She went in for three episodes, and I think she's done nine. And Britt Morgan, everything she gets, she gets a second season. And then Jacob Artis was on Glee. He was hired as a series regular, and so was Allegra. Allegra was hired as a series regular on The Runaways. 
Allegra Acosta, that's right. I'm just trying to provide you free publicity at this point, Lauren. I want everyone to know how many great students you have. Lauren Allen was quite a, a, a trip, too, because she actually went in for like five episodes on Young and Restless and ended up doing like 78 while in law school. And she just passed the bar. I know. Yeah. Lauren, and she was in acting yeah. class at the same time. So <laughs> just goes to show you how flexible these people are. I have two more questions for you. The first is kind of talking about a little bit about spirituality, because just from knowing you, I know how connected you are to Indian spiritual traditions, and you've visited places all over the world. Uh, I've met your spiritual teacher, Satyan, and I don't know if I got this sense from the first time I had met you, but I think I, over the, over the course of time, I developed a sense that there was just, and I know this sounds very LA, new agey, but there was a, a very good feeling just coming to your studio, whether that's the community of people that are there, uh, whether that's you know the class and how much I enjoy it. But I've been in, at the studio at 1 a.m. I've been at the studio at some of the toughest moments I think I've had in my sort of adolescence and going into college. Uh, and I felt very safe there. And that's apart from the acting. And so I just wanted to get a sense of how the spiritual lessons you have learned over the course of your life and what lessons those are also, uh, but how that has affected you as an acting teacher. I don't even know how I would put those two things together because for me, everything I do is intuitive. I, I love and appreciate and I'm so thrilled to know and I do know it and I didn't necessarily see it as something that should be any other way, but I really love that what you just said, that my studio was safe. I always did feel like it was really special, but everybody thinks their studio is special. You know, but people come, they walk through the gate, they come into the lounge, and people are hugging, and the camaraderie here is unbelievable. Uh, And people have had friends, they've made friends here that they're friends with for life. Through quarantine, they're like missing each other. The community that shows up for my show, my reviewer came to the show and reviewed it and said he walked into the lobby right before the show went up and he thought he'd missed it and everybody was, ha- it was a good show and everybody spilled out into the lobby and was just having fun afterwards. They were having fun before they walked in the theater. The community here is amazing and I, I think, you know, they say everything starts at the top. I appreciate that. I do think that's true. I don't tolerate a weird competitive, competitiveness just by simply not allowing it to materialize here. I mean, my manifestation of this of this community has been my love for what I do and knowing also that being not not the scholar in 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 academic school for myself that I just knew that I wanted the experience to be good and I wanted people to love each other as much as I love them. And sure, people fall out and they're not all friends with each other. My spiritual, I mean, look, the work is all intuitive and the way that I breathe into the into the storytelling and the and the community it's an open space like i guess since you're asking that if i would have put the two things together it's like i surrender to trusting so i incur- and, and and out of that comes great growth extreme value and in so in doing so i realize that if i can encourage you guys to just surrender to trusting that you'll have a better experience and as a result of that you know, people do, but our human nature sometimes slips back in and there'll be, you know, things that'll happen that, but the work, you know, we're working, I'm attracted to characters that are dysfunctional or kind of messed up and dark. I also think that that taps into the underbelly of ourselves. And if we can see it, mirror ourselves and all these things, we can, we can shed some negativity and purge instead of taking it on and becoming unhealthy as a result of it. In fact, when people say, oh, actors are crazy. I'm like, 
No, they don't need to be. If you use this work right, you can be extremely healthy. You can be way healthier than the postal worker who has to suppress everything and ends up going crazy in the end. Acting, mm-hmm. you know, I always say the, the torture, the, the sufferings in your life didn't happen for naught if you learn how to use them productively and healthily in your work. And then you have your muses even in the worst of experiences and, it's, and it can be very healthy. And the very last question I wanted to ask you is just kind of a, a practical one. I was recently offering or trying to offer some advice to someone who wanted to get into the industry. I myself was very lucky. I had a a mentor, Bob Westbrook, who was my my vocal coach in Memphis, who really helped me get to LA and to do it without, number one, wasting a lot of money, uh, and, and number two, putting me in a place where I was safe and I wasn't going to be taken advantage of. I think both of those things I was... I am very indebted to him for that. So what I wanted to ask you is from your side of things, let's say there's someone out in America who doesn't live in LA, but I imagine some of, even if they do live in LA, some of this will be applicable and they want to be an actor in film and TV. And let's at least maybe start off with, they sort of have followed your first rule, which I know what it is, which is like, be a good actor before you go get the headshots and the stuff, you know, take some classes, see what's going on. But uh, apart from that, what would you recommend to people who want to, to be in this business, but more importantly, who want to do this beautiful thing, which is to, to act in film and TV? You know, that question is so not twofold, like that's 20-fold, that's not twofold, but, you know, you're right, the first thing I would say to somebody practically is get in a class, you know, mine preferably, but I don't really start with beginners, but I'll coach people until they can join the class. Um, Mostly what I would say is listen to your instincts, meaning if you're going to seek out that class, see in your belly if it works for you, and if the fear is about it being challenging, take the dive. There's a thing that we have as actors that we don't recognize, which is our intuitiveness. And there's a voice in our head sometimes that's talking to us. And usually the one that's saying negative shit to you is the liar. It's the part that's challenging you to fear. The reality is that when we know something, we know it. So when you connect with something that makes sense, you got to listen to yourself and not everybody else. I think you know, there's a line in This Is Our Youth, I think. I think it's This Is Our Youth where, what's her name? Jessica says, I think my instincts are broken. Uh, I love that line. I've always loved that line. It's just genius because a lot of actors' instincts are broken because they're listening to something that people are saying and they think it's supposed to be the truth because of who they, who, I'm air quoting right now, who that person is. And it's not always the truth. And I can tell you right now, if you feel sick in your gut when somebody's telling you something that's supposed to be true, it's not true. It's a lie. Mm-hmm. Because the, the, the truth of the matter is that, you know, there's three ways in which we receive communication. What we hear, what we see, and what we feel. And we can validate what we see by asking the guy next to you, do you, do you see that? We can validate what we hear because we can ask the girl next to you, do you hear that? We can't validate what we feel by anybody else but ourselves. That's the part of us that's telling the truth, and that's the part you need to listen to. So fundamentally, take classes before you try to get a job in a profession you don't know what it is. Don't put your wares out there in front of people until you can sense that what you're putting out there is good because you're going to do a lot of doubling back. 
you're going to make not enemies, but you're going to you're going to have to like kind of redo something, you know, mm-hmm. wait a little while to get your headshots till you know who you are as a performer. So you don't spend money there. Ultimately, listen to the people that when they're talking about what they're talking about, it makes you feel good. And I don't mean because they're telling you nice things about yourself. I mean, because it makes sense to you. So my advice would be listen to your heart. Listen to your belly. Don't just be a rebel for the hell of it. You don't have to suffer for your art. Prioritize. Be intelligent. Listen. And respond to your emails. <laughs> That's such a big one, too. Just, like, do the practical things that, you know, the communication. On that note, I'm very grateful for, for our relationship. And I think at this point I can say friendship as well. well no, for sure. Uh, oh my God, are you kidding me? It's so great to have you as, as a coach and, and to, to keep learning from you every day. And uh, I'm looking forward to doing this session for this audition that I have now. Right after we're taping this podcast, we're going straight to some other stuff. I'm excited to end the evening that way because I'll be honest with you, Serge, you really are one of the most extraordinary people that I know. You have so much integrity and you speak so much truth and you're completely honest and you're really present and you're extremely generous. I do not know how you are also doing this podcast and your blog at the same time. And you are 100% as good for your word as anybody could be. And so I appreciate you so much and I've watched you grow from a kid who was just like that to an adult who maintained all of those qualities and got better at all of it but started there and that's an, that's really a credit to your family and the way that you've been raised and all that good stuff I know that I'm not supposed to throw this back at you but there you go <laughs> I love you Serge I love you so much oh well thank you Lauren uh, thank you so much for being on the podcast and for, for talking with me and providing your insight into acting and to the acting class and and what it means to to do this this wonderful job that I'm privileged to do. Well, it's my pleasure, for sure. You can subscribe to Art in All Its Forms, the podcast and the newsletter at artinallitsforms.substack.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on any of your favorite podcast apps. And if you want to send us a question or comments or concerns, uh, please email us at aiaifpod at gmail.com. That's aiaifpod at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening.